Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, WAG listeners, it's Allison, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Candleland supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Candleland shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of our podcasts. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Candleland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. For $2 a month, you can become a supporter and do your part to ensure we can continue making this show. And we really like making this show for you. Basically, nothing costs $2 anymore. You could, like, get a bag of candy, a locker at a public swimming pool. I've been honestly trying to think of something that cheap, and I'm not getting far. So sign up for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join, or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. It's crowdfunding month here at Canada Land. Yes, it's that time of the year again when Canada Land briefly switches from politely requesting your support to outright demanding it. This is amazingly the third of these that Wag the Dog has been through. It blows my mind that we've had an Ontario politics podcast for over two years now. I'm so proud of the pandemic coverage that we've pulled off this year, and I'm really looking forward to doing some more specific policy-themed episodes moving forward. For example, we have an episode on Doug Ford's relationship with the police that's in the works, and I'm really excited to bring that out. And also probably one on homelessness and housing and evictions. Before this podcast, I actually didn't know that much about provincial policy, except to the extent that it concerns municipal authority. And we are immensely grateful that 75 of you have already signed up to offer $5 a month to a podcast where we utter sentences like that. I'm so happy to be the provincial guru to your municipal guru, Jonathan. (laughs) And if we get another 225 of you that want to hear sentences like that, then we get to do this twice a month. And that that being the twice a month was a prospect I was actually a bit nervous about when it was first presented to me, but which I've come to realize still wouldn't come close to letting us examine all of the ways in which Doug Ford, the person and the personality, shapes all of our lives on a daily basis. Which, for those of you especially who remember his tenure at Toronto City Hall, is the kind of thought that becomes more distressing the longer you linger on it. So support Wag the Doug and subscribe to this podcast and a whole package of Canada Land shows at canadaland.com slash join. And we have swag that our colleagues, not just Jesse, have thought up and designed. For nine bucks Canadian, new subscribers can get all six Canada Land podcasts ad-free, plus socks. You should check out the site just to take a look at our new socks, which feature the word Canada Land, both with and without the pesky vowels. And for $14 Canadian, you will get all the podcasts plus a duly noted notebook. Which is a notebook that says duly noted on it, so you too will have a platform for your not yet fully developed theories about what the CBC or whatever is up to this week. So please, this really is the moment when your support can help us launch into another year of wagging the dug, by which we mean holding him and his government to account as best we can in a podcast. Go to candleland.com slash join and subscribe. Thank you. So, Jonathan, now that the pandemic is in its second wave and things are a big old COVID-y mess again, would you say that Doug Ford has returned to being the premier we used to know? Well, before he just insisted he knew better than the city of Toronto when it came to, like, the number of councillors it should have, 
more recently, he's been insisting he knows better than Toronto Public Health in terms of how to have people in the city not die. It seems clear to me and to most experts that the Ford government really didn't utilize the summer months to spend the money and lay the groundwork necessary to protect long-term care residents, beef up the testing system, or to hire contract tracers. But would you say that's Fordian? I would say that as a rallying cry, open for business, Toronto is open for business, Ontario is open for business, has seldom felt more sinister. I'm Allison Smith, publisher of Queen's Park Today, and I recently waited for 5.5 hours in a COVID testing line. That was before Doug Ford moved the system to appointment only and made it even harder to get a test. I was negative. And I'm Jonathan Goldsby, news editor at Canada Land, and I check Toronto's COVID monitoring dashboard a few times a week, which is why I'm glad to be recording this from under a blanket at home and also I have asthma. And this is Wag the Doug, a monthly podcast about Doug Ford. And existential anguish as depicted by Norwegian expressionists. You'll understand in a moment. Or maybe you already do. episodes, we discussed Doug Ford's rise to pandemic hero and media darling. But here we are today to tell you that the wheels, at least in some regards, kind of seem to have come off. When it comes to managing the pandemic in Ontario, Ford's generally lackadaisical attitude towards governing has left testing sites, hospitals, nursing homes, and school boards all scrambling. The Premier spent, you know, a couple months on a summer tour, as he does, of the province, and the whole of government seemed kind of caught off guard when a second wave came rolling in by mid-September. Who would have seen that coming? And now we learned the day we're recording that Halloween is cancelled in at least a few of the hotspot areas of the province. Well, not cancelled so much, but per the Chief Medical Officer of Health, if you live in Ottawa, Peel, Toronto, or York regions, instead of going door-to-door, you should encourage kids to dress up and participate in virtual activities and perhaps have a movie night and share scary stories. On this episode of Wag the Dog, we will have some stories for you that may be scary. We'll find out. Scary movies. Advice from the medical officer of health. Probably good advice. But we'll talk about that. We also talked to David Fisfin, a professor of epidemiology at the University of Toronto's Dalla School of Public Health. Fisman has been keeping a really close eye on the Ford government's moves during the pandemic, and in the past, at least, had some hot Twitter takes about Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. David Williams, who some in the medical community are starting to have doubts about. But first, let's take a trip back in time over the past three weeks that I think will illustrate exactly how far behind the Ford government was when it came to tackling the second wave of the pandemic. An Ontario government news release from September 28th. Ontario investing $52.5 million to recruit, retain, and support more healthcare workers. Number of new COVID cases in Ontario that day, 700. The province was committing a bunch of money to hire and train new personal support workers for long-term care homes. We're recruiting over 2,000 more PSWs through our fall preparedness plan. We're putting 3,700 more boots on the ground to support our health care system. However, 10 days earlier, the Globe and Mail reported there were fewer staff working in nursing homes than there were in March, mostly because lots of them quit during the summer when the province's pandemic pay bump was ended. And also the province was criticized for, unlike Quebec and British Columbia, coming up with a big program to hire new PSWs during the summer, not wait till the end of September. Ontario Government News Release, October 5th. Ontario implementing additional public health and testing measures to keep people safe. Number of new COVID cases that day, 
615. The province said it's transitioning to appointment-based testing at Ontario assessment centers beginning Tuesday, October 6th. The point of that is to provide certainty to patients as to when they can receive a test during the cold winter months. However, what actually happened is without any centralized appointment system in place, hospitals and testing centers were left scrambling to set up booking systems. Some were even forced to use Eventbrite, a software or internet platform used more often for booking concert tickets than diagnostic testing, and most centers were shut down for two whole days. Since rolling out the appointment-only system, hospitals and testing centers are testing fewer patients than they were in the summer, and it is harder for certain segments of the population to get a test at all. Sure, Eventbrite appreciates the business these days. I most recently used Eventbrite for the 401 Richmond holiday party, which I suspect will not be taking place once again this year. Anyway... Ontario Government News Release, October 9th. Ontario implementing additional public health measures in Toronto, Ottawa, and Peel regions. Number of new cases that day, 939. So this was the day the province shut down indoor dining, movie theaters, and other businesses for at least 28 days in those hotspots. However, Toronto's Chief Public Officer of Health, Eileen Davila, had asked bars and restaurants to be closed a full week earlier, pointing to indoor dining as the cause of half of the city's recent outbreaks. Ontario Government News Release, October 14th. Ontario hiring hundreds more contact tracers and case managers. Number of new COVID cases that day, 721. So the province says up to 600 more recruits will help track, trace, and isolate new cases across the province. However... The week before, the City of Toronto had conceded it had more or less halted most of its contact tracing efforts because the system was overwhelmed and didn't even have enough time to notify people that had tested positive. We're hiring another 500 contact tracers and case managers by mid-November. We've hired 100 new contact tracers this week alone. We'll have almost 4,000 boots on the ground supporting our contact tracing efforts this fall. These new hires are being deployed to priority communities, including Ottawa and Toronto. 150 more staff are being deployed to help Ottawa. We'll be sending another 200 contact tracers to help Dr. Davila and her team in Toronto. The Ford government on October 14th boasted that there were more than 2,750 contact tracers working across Ontario, the same number it bragged about on September 24th. From tracking that dashboard over the summer, I mean, it was remarkable because the testing turnaround times, never great, always crummy. This is just the city of Toronto particularly. But the contact tracing, reaching out to people who tested positive and to all their contacts, those numbers in terms of people who successfully contacted within 24, 48 hours were consistently at or near 100%. They were absolutely rocking the contact tracing. And so it was definitely kind of... um, distressing to see how just how quickly it went to the point where they just had to stop because yeah they were no yeah no longer able to reach people who were tested positive and therefore had to reassign contact tracers and i think a part of the reason for that was health officials will say is that actually the number of contacts each person that tests positive had uh had skyrocketed since the summer or you know when we were in sort of tighter lockdown mode when you might have had seen for eight people, some of these people that were testing positive had now seen 100. So, you know, tracing that many people along the way is a lot more effort, obviously. But still, like a lot of things that we just mentioned beforehand, there were there had to have been signs, you know, if you were seeing all this data ahead of time and, and you know, had access to it as the government of Ontario does, then you could have been more prepared. Wow. Who sees 100 people at the best of occasions? I feel so lonely now. That's a yeah, it's a lo- that's a lot of contacts. People shouldn't be that popular or be going to movies that are that well attended these days unless they're seeing Tenet again and again and again because I don't know what they're seeing. Being in contact with that many people. I had, uh, as a, a member of the Queen's Park Press Gallery, been formally invited to see a screening of Tenet with Culture Minister Lisa McLeod. Uh, however, I, A, did not go. B, that happened a full 48 hours before the province shut down the movie theaters. So again, like weird forecasting of uh, time and what's about to happen there. Oh, that, that was back in, back in March? No, it was in October. 
Oh, oh, and for the show then the second time, where was the screening? Was it at least at the Cinesphere? Um, Varsity Cinema, yeah. Oh, fuck that. Oh my, I don't know why that makes me so angry. Because if you're going to go to a movie theater to see Tenet, you, the province owns the Cinesphere. It's the best and only place to see it. It's a 70 millimeter IMAX movie. And they're having their special screening at the fucking Varsity. I don't know why that makes me angrier than anything else. But like... I mean, I think part of the point of this activity was to, like, get some camera guys to show, like, how good the Cineplex people clean the theaters. Oh, Cineplex, of course. It was a Cineplex ad. I don't think it was so the journalists got the best possible screening of Tenet. That was lower on their priorities list. But again, why didn't Lisa McLeod's ministry have any freaking idea that this would all be shut down two days later? I mean, they all sit at the same cabinet table is all I'm saying. I mean... For all we know, maybe they were also going to show you uh, The Tenant, the Roman Polanski movie instead. Sure. <laughs> so what I hope we established through that uh, <laughs> dramatic reading of uh, provincial government news releases is that the Ford government was way behind when it came to COVID planning for the fall. But I think what we also need to talk about is like, OK, well, what does that mean? Who's being impacted by this? And what could have been better if they were more prepared? The people being impacted are, again, long-term care residents. There's been 156 deaths in nursing homes over the past month, bringing the total to 1,980 in the province. Residents in some homes are still living in three- to four-bed wards. Most, if not all, homes are understaffed. And while the province is giving cash bonuses to PSWs who take a job for at least six months, and pouring money into training new PSWs, those training programs are 44 weeks long, and it's going to be really tough to get homes staffed up properly throughout the winter. Secondly, people being the most impacted are people living in low-income and racialized neighborhoods. Data shows us that they're at a higher risk of contracting COVID, and that's something the province has known for months but seems to be doing little about. TTC bus routes in these neighborhoods are packed, and last week health officials' advice for transit riders in those areas was to, quote, wait for the next bus. And when Allison wrote that in the script, I thought that's an error, because I know the TTC had infamously said that on, you know, their TTC customer service Twitter account, which often says kind of well-meaning but really tone-deaf things. Uh, but no, as Allison pointed out, no, the Associate Medical Officer of Health actually did in fact say... Wait for the next bus. Especially like essential workers. Like these are like literally the people that we've been clapping for and celebrating and that really like kept society together while us middle class jerks like hid under blankets in our apartment. So for the, you know, the government response to that to be wait for the next bus is really insulting. And in a handful of Toronto neighborhoods, the COVID positivity rate is now 10%. For context, 3% is considered dangerously high. So in the spring, the province had been sending mobile testing units to these communities, which, you know, include places in Scarborough uh, and the northwestern part of the city. But I have no idea if they still are. And if they are, they're really not talking about it. And some of these are neighborhoods in Doug Ford's own riding. Uh, I mean, Etobicoke North is the area that Ford and members of his family have represented at one level of government or another in an unbroken chain for two decades now. Rob Ford was counselor from 2000 to 2010, then again from 2014 till his death in 2016. Doug Ford was counselor from 2010 to 2014, then MPP from 2018 onward. Their nephew, Michael, was school trustee from 2014 till Rob's death, and he ran a by-election to succeed him on council, and he's still in council there. And before all of that, Doug Ford Sr., their dad of Rob and Doug and Randy and Kathy, uh, was an MPP from 95 to 99, although his old riding was actually a bit south of there. Uh, it well, I mean, it lines up more closely to the current Etobicoke Center. All of which is to say that although no one can ever forget that the Fords are from Etobicoke, I mean, their name's synonymous with it at this point, it can be a bit easier to forget that the middle-slash-upper-middle-class neighborhood where they grew up, and that's sort of associated with them, is not really representative of the parts of Etobicoke that, at the very northwesternmost tip of Toronto, that they actually represent. Think, like, north of Dixon, west of the Humber. Rexdale, but like well beyond that too. I mean, it's hard to imagine that any individual could ever overturn decades of environmental institutional racism baked into the very, very planning and design of an area like that. But there's been little evidence that Ford, any Ford, has ever really tried. But yeah, no, it's just so easy to forget that that's Doug Ford's area. And 
I'm glad that even though, you know, he initially brushed it off in the spring, he did soon acknowledge that systemic racism is real in Ontario, duh. Because, I mean, you really only need look at any map of Toronto, and whether it's a map of incomes or a map of COVID cases, to see where the worst effects of all kinds of policies have been concentrated. I mean, he mentions the fact that these hard-hit neighborhoods are in his riding, but, you know, almost in kind of a way that he's, you know, surprised about it. And a weird, like, you know, it's it's me too. Like, I, I, I know all about this. But it sort of shows, like, it betrays the distance that he has between, I mean, himself obviously being, like, the most powerful guy in Ontario. Yeah, he's, like, pretty distant from most of us. But it doesn't seem like he's really, like, stepping up for his constituents uh, that really need help. Help right now. Two to three levels of government are represented by a member of his family. Yeah, that's also just weird, weird dynasties. And there's another group of people that are being impacted by the Ford government's uh, delays and uh, lack of forward thinking. And that is anybody who wants or needs to get a COVID test. The province has complicated the system by not allowing walk-in tests anymore which is, you know, which is fine. It's going to be winter. There needed to be a change. But what they did was really, I think, surprise all the testing sites and the hospitals with their announcement for this. They gave them just a few days and nobody had testing systems set up, hence the Inventbrite. And there's just so many other problems that are spawning out of this. One is that because there's no booking system that, that, you know, connects you to the nearest hospital. Every hospital in sight has their own system. So what people are doing, uh, I guess, as is human nature or, you know, as is, you know, your kid just got sent home from school and you want to get them back in by getting them a COVID test and results and the results are taking even longer. So people are booking tests at three to four different places trying to get the earliest test they can and then not showing up to all the other ones. So the system isn't working at the same capacity that it was in the summer. And it just seems like we are talking about whether or not this is like Fordian or if Ford's going back in time. The rollout of this announcement really reminded me of, you know, what the PC government was like in its first, you know, year or so in office, making rash decisions without really thinking of the implications of them and then kind of getting surprised uh, when, (laughs) when it wasn't working the way they wanted it to. Surely governing must be easy and and even fun if you can untether yourself from the bounds of reality and practical logistics and what can and cannot be accomplished. I mean, no longer the art of the possible and instead it's just art. Well, I guess art's fun, but it doesn't doesn't necessarily uh, accomplish policy objectives. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Speaking of art, for this episode, we talked to Dr. David Fisman, who tweeted a image of Edvard Munch's The Scream the other week with the caption, Mood. Have a great day, all. So we really wanted to talk to Dr. Fisman, not just because of that, but because his tweets throughout this whole pandemic have been really fascinating. He's an epidemiologist. He teaches at U of T in the uh, School of Public Health. Uh, he's formerly uh, medical, an associate medical officer of health for the city of Hamilton, worked for Public Health Ontario, expert disease modeler, and very effective communicator, someone who's used Twitter to not just explain what's going on, but to actually be engaging and deeply critical in ways that public health officials, he's not really a public health official, but in ways that people who are experts in his area don't often get an opportunity to do. I mean, he's, uh, as he'll mention, he's a U of T, he's an academia that seems to give him a lot more freedom to speak his mind than uh, people, than, you know, people who work still in hospitals or other parts of the public sector, uh, which, you know, where epidemiologists often work. Of course, there are still limits to what he can and can't say, as he will, uh, as he'll explain. 
As well as anything I've seen, your tweets over the course of the pandemic taken together tell a story about how the Ontario government has managed and or mismanaged it all. In April, you were, you know, remarking that you were surprised and impressed by Premier Ford, that he'd stepped up and been a leader when we needed it, and that his actions back in mid-March had saved many lives. And, you know, by September, you were saying, you know, he looks like he was making policies and then retrofitting the guidance to cover his ass, and that there were policy levers he could have used to avert the second wave, but he chose not to touch them, and that he owns what is coming. So I guess from the spring to the summer and to now, what do you think changed? I think one of the difficult things about public health, and this is well beyond the pandemic, is when you do it right and you do it well, things don't happen. And it's very difficult for people to understand that the non-occurrence of events is the outcome of an active effort, an active process. You did stuff so that things didn't happen. I think the difficulty for leaders, Premier Ford, any leader really, is always going to be that taking strong action, taking it proactively before it's a disaster, is always going to be hard politically because people are going to say, why are you doing these things? Nothing's going on. Or why did you do these things? Nothing happened. We didn't have a you know mass death event as this idiot at University of Toronto predicted we would. You shut down society and then that stuff didn't happen. And you know you sort of have to understand this stuff well enough to say, well, you know, what, what the models are presenting you with is, I mean, the big word for it is the counterfactual, right? It's the parallel universe where you did nothing. The models motivated you to do something, and then um, that outcome didn't happen. Um, I think it's unfortunate because to a certain extent, I think folks in leadership positions came over the summer to believe that, you know, this is done and we figured it out and it wasn't that big a deal. We did all this stuff and nothing happened, which then saps your motivation in terms of trying to get ready for fall. And what I found, you know, without getting into specifics, is someone who's sort of peripherally involved with some of these processes, sits on some government tables and so forth, is there hasn't been a tremendous sense of urgency, which I think is partly fed by the idea that we had figured this out and it really wouldn't be coming back, which is really ahistorical in terms of every pandemic comes back and every pandemic, you know, when it has an out of season emergence, the second wave is worse than the first. And uh, we haven't had that yet. And as much as I, I think I'm probably regarded with scorn by people at Queen's Park, um, you know, credit where credit's due. We have a reproduction number right now in the low ones in terms of epidemic growth, each old case making one and change. In March, it was three. So the stuff we have been doing and are doing is making a big difference and is keeping people out of hospital. That said, you know, day on day, we have a few more people in the ICU every day. We have, you know, a couple more people in the hospital every day. We're up to you know, the mid-200s with hospitalizations were up to, I think, 71 ICU right now. But it's not hundreds and it's not thousands. But again, that's the result of active effort. My big worry the last couple of weeks has really been, and there's been some triumphalism in the pages of uh, some post-media uh, <laughs> um, publications about, oh, people made a big deal about schools and then nothing happened. I, th- I think that's coming now. We're starting to see it in the testing numbers where you really had percent positivity in little kids very constant until about a week and a half ago. And it's climbing sharply now. So I do think we're seeing amplification in schools. And again, you know, this is predictable. The thing to do would have been to have small class sizes and, you know, stave this off for as long as possible. They chose not to do that for whatever reason. Taken by your remark that the that the government or, or Doug Ford was had sort of been claiming victory um, up ahead of the fall second wave. And, and I agree with you. It really did seem like, you know, he was, we did this, let's, let's motor on open for business. How much do you think that kind of attitude or, and who knows how much it really proliferated, you know, among the people at Queens Park, how much do you think that, you know, impacted the lack of planning and organization ahead of the second wave? I don't think this is really on Doug Ford. He's a political leader and has come into this job, you know, he's not an epidemiologist, he's not an infectious disease physician, he's not, you know, there's there's no reason to expect him to have this skill set. He has a leadership skill set. And I think in terms of, of leading people and explaining to people, I think he does that admirably. I think his job is harder, because it's not really been clear to me that a 
you know, some of the folks advising him necessarily have been able to evolve as science and information has evolved. So that puts him in a tough position because, you know, it's it's not really clear what he's hearing about sort of these important issues or these important updates or important developments. B, I do think that we have a fairly epic health bureaucracy in Ontario and have had for some time under, you know, under both liberal and conservative governments. That's not really a system that's set up to be nimble and innovative, right? So you find yourself in a pandemic, which is by definition a brand new disease and a weird situation and, you know, has the potential to, you know, end in catastrophe. Having a health system that works on kind of timelines of months to years rather than days to weeks, I think also makes it really difficult uh, for him because what you're what you're looking for is for people to come up with new ways of doing things basically on the fly. But a week and a half ago, um, I think it was the same day or shortly after, shortly before the premier announced their modified stage two that Toronto and Ottawa have been asking for. I mean, you tweeted uh, a picture of Edward Munch's The Scream and said, you know, mood, have a great day all. <laughs> My goodness, you're kind of creeping me on Twitter. What I'm wondering is like, could I guess, could you elaborate on what your anguish despair of that day and do you still feel that way that was when they the, when they were not going to scale things back i think yeah and that, and that may have reflected what we were looking at in terms of numbers in terms of test positivity really going up and up and up and that being very important for them to do that you know i was sort of having backs and forths with with some folks at toronto public health in the week leading up about you know, trying to articulate why this was so important, what Dr. Davila was asking for. When you're headed into sort of exponential growth, if you're reacting to what's what's right now rather than thinking a couple of weeks ahead, you've missed the boat. And that was the mistake made, you know, by a few different places in the in the spring. I, I'm not going to deny that I may have a little bit of a flair for the dramatic on social media. I think of trying to communicate as best I can what I think sort of needs to happen and give folks a nudge because of the prominence that that Twitter account has weirdly obtained. And if that's been helpful in preventing people from getting sick and dying, then that's all to the good. Um, I don't have a book deal. I don't have a secret ulterior motive which i've been accused on of, of now on You've twitter also been uh consistently critical of ontario's chief medical officer of health dr david williams you said at one point that that having a chief medical officer of health to use as a foil and who doesn't upstage you uh in this case you know the premier uh and becoming emblematic of decency community and reason is probably attractive to a politician and that, that, that there's a number of more morally flexible individuals in public health who are prepared to provide cover for bad policy if their bosses so desire. I wonder if you could, you know, elaborate on that. I can't, because what I've learned is that is that I'm I, I, personalizing things crosses a line into malice, which sort of does uh, does serve as an outer bound in terms of what I can say in terms of fair comment. If we're going to dig into this, we can start way back in February, March, where it was abundantly clear that we had community transmission of COVID, the line coming out of the CMOHs and associate CMOH was that there's no community transmission. That directly prevented people from changing their behavior um, and I think helped that first wave to grow unfettered. I'm aware of situations where, because of that messaging, that there was no community transmission, people who were working in long-term care disregarded symptoms of uh, respiratory illness that they had, and that actually sparked outbreaks in long-term care. Um, I think the, the, the failure to react in a prompt way to what was clearly happening in long-term care, even after state of Washington and British Columbia, had gone through that, these high mortality events, British Columbia had basically laid out a roadmap for how you keep this from happening. The fact that nothing really happened for over a month after death started, the reluctance to acknowledge that asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission is important. I mean, that, that directly affects how we control this. If pre-symptomatic transmission is important, all of the symptom screening in the world isn't going to make a difference. And we're, we're still there. I mean, it's fall of 2020. 
And there still hasn't been acknowledgement that if you want to find cases who are infectious before they have symptoms, you actually have to figure out how to test those. I can go on if you'd like. We can talk about aerosol transmission, how important the acknowledgement of aerosol is for controlling this in in efficient and meaningful ways that don't result in wholesale closure of the economy. I mean, you know, just at every step of the way, every time there's been kind of, uh, you know, a branch point where, you know, we've learned something, it changes how we should be, you know, operating. I mean, that's manifest in today's decision on Halloween. There's no real, you know, harm in, in, in kids doing an activity out of doors, if folks use hand sanitizer, I mean, for goodness sake, they're not going to infect each other in large numbers because you have, you know, you're in the ultimate ventilated space, you're outdoors. And if this is predominantly an aerosol transmitted disease, you know, I think, you know, the potential blowback here is you're now encouraging people to do Halloween parties, which is exactly the wrong messaging. So so I, I think it's been all the way along. I think it's been really problematic. I don't, I don't think Dr. Williams or Dr. Yaffe are coming up with these talking points or ideas in a vacuum. But, you know, I, 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 I think there's, there's been this remarkable reluctance to, um, uh, to be proactive, to employ the precautionary principle, which is what we're supposed to do when we're operating under uncertainty. I mean, there's another one is masks. We don't have to go there. But it really is, for me, it's sort of excruciating to watch this because this translates directly into how big of a hit does our economy take. It translates directly into people's compliance with public health guidance. Because if you've been giving muddled messaging for months and some small things changes, I was talking to my partner about this, you know, we're both thinking about this sort of morning till night every day and we can't keep up with what Ontario's guidance is. We feel muddled. And kind of feel like I, you know, I feel like I need a big chart, a big infographic to spell out what is and isn't acceptable where in Ontario. And I think that's a result of months and months of really poor muddled messaging that doesn't make any sense. We haven't even touched on schools yet. You mentioned yet. A fair comment and malice. Have you had particular cause recently to speak to a, a defamation lawyer? I have. It was really interesting. Oh, okay. So there was something <laughs> particular that prompted that, huh? There Sometimes was. you've been critical of the premier, other times you've been critical of the advice he's been given or the advice he's getting or the, you know, or saying you don't quite know what advice he might be hearing. What would an ideal relationship between uh, a premier and their chief medical officer of health look like to you? Public health's never not political. Um, you know, it never, never has been non-political. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's part of the, the art of it is negotiating the, the, the political currents with the science. And I realize the chief medical officer of health is not, you know, in, in simply an advisory role, but actually is, is actually making decisions at the provincial level. But I think it's very important for folks to realize that you don't want a chief medical officer of health who's thinking first and foremost of particular constituents or first and foremost of politics when making decisions. And I'm not saying he is, but I think it's very important. And the reason the the initial idea was for Public Health Ontario to be arm's length is because politics bleeds into everything. And you have difficulties with time horizon, you have difficulties with vocal constituencies. And at the end of the day, you really are probably wanting to do the best for society as a whole, even if you transiently disadvantage some individuals or groups by making these decisions. It's it's very explicitly a utilitarian frame that's applied to decision-making is greatest good for the greatest number, um, which, which implicitly allows you to disadvantage some individuals, but also allows societies to avert catastrophes due to inaction. I would love to uh, have a sense that the CMOH is someone who could, could could and would speak truth to power and could and would articulate difficult things, um, even even if that, that that creates a bit of tension with the premier of the All day. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Fisman. Those are uh, incredible insights. Anytime. I hope I haven't said anything terrible or that results in additional lawyer nope, letters. Not. That's, that's very noncommittal on your part, John. <laughs> so that was more... Um... More moderate than I actually expected, given his uh, given his rhetoric and given his his pointed remarks 
online. But I mean, there could be any number of reasons for that, as alluded to. And one of those, you know, to the benefit of all of us, is that COVID cases in Ontario and the response to them is a situation that is best assessed at the level of existential horror via Norwegian expressionism. So that's always good. That's always good. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like his, you know, description of the modeling and, and how modeling for how bad things are going to get and, and you know, really explaining that that is a counterfactual that we're actually never supposed to uh, see. And that's the point of the model. I think he, he did a great job of, you know, explaining that. And on the same day that Dr. Fisman tweeted the scream image, uh, the, the public health officers, when they were when they were shutting down uh, businesses or some businesses in Toronto, they were saying like, we could hit Italy levels, things could get really, really bad here. And then again, they're talking about what the models show. And then also being like, we got to do this so we can't reach it. So in that way, no, the wheels aren't coming off because likely the government took action and it's not going to get as bad as it could. But I was pretty taken on his remark about the exponential growth in schools, for example. Is that going to be the next breakout zone? I mean, people have been warning about that forever. But now we're at a point where kids have been in school for, you know, just about a month because most schools started pretty late this year. And... Who knows? And I think also on the school issue, like what the province really did was throw the issue at individual school boards and kind of give them the autonomy to handle it. And what that looked like in practice, I get this uh, briefing email from the Queen's Park Press Gallery every day that includes a bunch of local news. And what I notice in the in the sort of the local news section is a lot about schools that we're not really hearing on the provincial level because all of the decisions are being made out there then. It's things like the Guelph School Board or the London District School Board making changes to how often high school students are attending class and, you know, different schools being closed in different parts of the province. And, and because that's all happening at the local level, I feel like we're not really hearing about it that much right now. And I guess from Dr. Fisman's forewarning, I, I, maybe we will be soon. And now it's time for foreseeable disaster of the month. Foreseeable. What did you foresee last month that we need to uh, see whether your foreseeing was up to snuff? So last month, I identified as the foreseeable disaster, the implication of what were at the time the latest, you know, difficult to interpret and not entirely coherent and not entirely sensical uh, restrictions on gatherings, which is to say, you know, you could have up to whatever, it was like 100 or something people indoors, as long as it's like in a professional banquet hall or whatever, but you can't have more than, what was it, like more than two dozen or something in a backyard. And, you know, concerned about not only does it not really make sense given what we know about how things transmit, but also, you know, there would be like it would likely not be enforced in a in an equitable manner, shall we say? Uh, did I properly foresee that? Uh, I would argue no, given that the restrictions have once again changed. Uh, and yeah, it was overly generous in assuming that the stupid restrictions they had that we would have now would be the same as the stupid restrictions we would have we have then. Whereas we're back to it's sort of a different type of little mismatch, one that's slightly better, but um. I feel like things will still come out. I think that your foreseeable disaster had a, like a bit to do with how muddled the and inconsistent the the messaging from the province has been. And and in that case, I think that has, you know, continues to come uh, into fruition. For example, the, the Halloween thing today. It's almost like cheating to say that the province will have muddled messaging that will cause issues. Like that's that's kind of the default. So I am not sure that was that was a, a fair guess. If Or I, that's a very generous interpretation of what I said, if you're looking to give me the point. So I appreciate that. <laughs> what was your what was yours last month again? It was like, universities? Yeah, my foreseeable disaster of the month was, you know, outbreaks at, at universities and uh, how beer pong would uh, shape the second wave of the COVID pandemic. Uh, again, we haven't heard all of that much about that. Although Western University declared an outbreak at a residence last week, that is still forcing growth uh, of COVID cases in, you know, smaller cities where this hadn't really been as big of a problem. So I think, you know, it's it could be possible that this is similar to uh, what David Fisman was, was suggesting is going to be happening with with uh, public schools. And, you know, it's not terrible, but it's, uh, you know, still not so great. 
So what disaster do you foresee for the coming month, Allison? So this may be like a longer term uh, potential disaster. It has to do with Cambridge MVP Belinda Carialahos and her husband, Jim. Belinda was kicked out of the PC party caucus uh, earlier this summer because she refused to vote on a bill that would give the government, you know, uh, big emergency powers during the pandemic. And her husband, Jim, has been uh, on the outs with both the PC party and the Conservative Party of Canada for extended periods of time uh, because he's just kind of a a shitster and uh, likes to, I think he's suing them both right now. Just (laughs) that's all we really to say about those details. But the two of them have started a new party called the True Blue Party of Ontario. They're positioning the party as like a true right wing party in Ontario, uh, sort of saying that the PCs are too center and that they want to give Ontarians that, that are conservatives, you know, an alternate place to vote. I don't think that this is going to be like an electoral issue for the PC party. I think it's it's very hard. We've seen, you know, with with Maxime Bernier's People's Party. It's hard for a small far right party to pick up steam in the way our electoral system is designed. But I think it also shows that the PCs, you know, for Doug Ford, there seems to be a constituency or a faction of, you know, probably former PC voters that are shifting, uh, you know, away from him right now. We've seen those anti-masking protests in Toronto. Uh, the, the attendance at them really, really go up. Uh, Belinda herself refuses to wear a, a mask at the legislature uh, where she still sits as, a, as an independent and I guess still will until... Uh, the True Blue Party, uh, you know, is fully like certified with Elections Ontario. And then she'd kind of still be an independent, but I guess, you know, have that party affiliation sort of tied to her. I don't know. I, I, Ontario just doesn't have, you know, as far, long as I've been covering politics, there really hasn't been any uh, far right party that at gotten a lot of attention or has the ability to. I don't know how far these guys are going to go. What does that mean for the PCs? Like, why is it a foreseeable disaster? I think having far right factions that, you know, get louder and louder voices does have the ability to, you know, get a, get politicians and leaders attention in ways that that might not be the greatest. I don't think Doug Ford's going to, you know, fall for this, but he also doesn't want big chunks of his Ford Nation base to go running off to uh, find find some other party. So I, I don't know how that's going to pan out, but it's going to be interesting. Yeah, the effect of far-right parties and far-right movements on uh, relatively mainstream conservative movements is a fascinating one because it could, you know, has often has a couple of effects we can see. One is that sometimes a relatively mainstream party will lurch further to the right or try to adopt certain tropes or planks in an effort to capture or recapture some of that vote. And the other thing that often happens, sometimes at the same time, is that they allows them the the right wing party to portray itself as relatively moderate and relatively progressive, and like you know we are the less racist pushers of austerity. I mean, it also speaks to Ford has been, I think, as we've we've probably discussed on the show before, but like friending it up with Justin Trudeau lately, and you know that has uh, very pragmatic reasons. He wants Justin Trudeau to give lots of money to Ontario, so and, you know, help bail out businesses and and commercial rent subsidies and all of the things that the federal government's been doing. But Ford has been playing very nice with him. And we've even seen, like, top PC insiders, for example, Jenny Byrne, who worked in the premier's office, you know, tweeting pretty angry things at Doug Ford for the way that he's been friending up with Trudeau and, and, you know, others of her ilk doing the same thing too. My foreseeable disaster of the coming month and really of the coming season and perhaps it's also cheating because, you know, the, the turning of seasons is itself foreseeable. Uh, I mean, for the time being, goodness knows what, what climate change will further bring. Uh, but frankly, the that, I mean, the issue of housing, evictions, homelessness, um, I guess we could argue whether or not we've yet seen an eviction crisis. There was a concern that maybe things would happen all at once or that there would be some mass throwing out of people onto the street. And I'm sure that has happened to an extent. What I feel like we haven't quite as prepared for or braced ourselves for in the same way, or maybe have maybe just people who are relatively comfortable haven't thought about it the same way, is how that'll how that will 
is an issue that's something that will likely grow and accumulate gradually, month by month, as each time rent comes due and as cases presumably make their way through the landlord and tenant board or via whatever other processes have been set up. And the fact is, I mean, you know, sometimes it doesn't start snowing till December and November isn't always, is usually isn't bitterly cold, though, you know, once again, given the way this year is going, we're probably going to fucking blizzard. But certainly as encampments and parks become less viable as a means to stay safe and warm, uh, I do wonder and worry about what is going to happen when it comes down to a choice for people who don't otherwise have housing between shelters, which are not really, mostly not really safe or great at the best of times, versus trying to figure out a way to make it work outdoors. It's not strictly a provincial issue. Every level of government has a role in it. Every level of government has been complicit. Every level of government is at fault. But specifically when it comes to issues of tenancy, rent, and affordable housing, the province of Ontario has an outsized role in this. And as we know, those are not areas in which Doug Ford is really pushing things forward in a way that helps anyone. Unless you're a landlord, in which case you're probably reasonably pleased. That was Wag the Doug, a show about a spectacular return to normalcy in Fordlandia. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can find me under this blanket and or on Twitter at Goldsby. I'm Allison Smith, and you can find me on Twitter at, at Queen's Park Today. Our producer is Demilola Oname, our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt, and our theme music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, support us. Go to canadaland.com join or click on the link in the show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.